Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We will ask the independent special rapporteur as one of the first tasks of their mandate to provide the government with a recommendation as to what the appropriate next step should be. Pointed exchanges concerning China's interference in Canada's general elections in 2019 and 2021 were delivered at question period, as you know, in Parliament between Conservative Party of Canada leader Pierre Polyev and Prime Minister Trudeau over what the Liberals and Trudeau knew and didn't know. The issue continues at the procedure in House Public Affairs and Ethics Committees, and the opposition parties voted for that public inquiry. They also want the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, to testify, and the Liberals have been... uh, filibustering that. We're joined by the Conservative Party of Canada leader, Pierre Polyev. Mr. Polyev, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you very much for having me, Mr. Green. Now, let's talk about this issue of uh, the selection of the rapporteur. Do you have concerns? First of all, what is a rapporteur? Sounds like a fake made-up position. I, I joked in the House of Commons that sounds like a rapporteur. Sounds like someone who has to wear a cape and carry around a sword. Uh, it's a fake position that Trudeau's invented in order to distract from the fact that we know that a foreign dictatorship in Beijing interfered in two elections to help Trudeau win. They pumped money. They gave what what, uh, PM's own department said was clandestine transfers of cash to political parties. Uh, Trudeau knew about that. He was briefed on it. He has been continuously briefed on it since 2017, six years ago, and yet he has done absolutely nothing about it. Furthermore, this same foreign dictatorship gave $200,000 in donations to the Trudeau Foundation, something he's known about for a decade, obviously to win favor with him and uh, to get him uh, to uh, act favorably towards the interests of that foreign dictatorship. We want a full-blown open investigation, public inquiry, we can get to the bottom of Beijing's uh, support of the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau and what involvement Trudeau had in in that interference. A rapporteur is a United Nations uh, term, I believe, and they have rapporteurs who report to governments. Um, What do you believe Mr. Trudeau's motive is to continue to refuse to support a public inquiry? He's hiding. He's hiding the truth. He, uh, from the time he became prime minister, it was clear he was acting to support the demands of the regime in Beijing. He even considered a free trade agreement with China, a country that doesn't actually practice free trade. He refused to call out human rights abuses in China. Uh, he re- refused to defend uh, us against unfair trade practices by the be- dictatorship in Beijing. He pre- refused. For years to ban Huawei, a Chinese-controlled 
telecommunications hardware company from being on our telecom network. And he has so far refused to bring in a foreign influence registry, registry that would allow us to identify and expose anyone who takes payment from a foreign dictatorship to manipulate our politics. He's doing all of these things that Beijing wants him to do. Um, and it's just very interesting that simultaneously Beijing has been helping him and the Liberal Party win elections uh, by pumping money and other support to the Liberal Party. He doesn't want any of the his involvement and knowledge of that to come to light, and that's why he refuses to allow a full public inquiry. Mr. Polyev, do, you, do I hear you saying you believe the Prime Minister of Canada has more than a passive interest in uh, satisfying the objectives of China when it comes to Canada? Well, it's a very strange relationship. First of all, he was asked, what is the administration around the world he most admires? And he volunteered that it was communist China. He said that, quote, the basic communist dictatorship, China is the best system of government because it allows politicians to run the economy. Yeah, but, but do, do, do you believe that he is uh, supporting the objectives of China when it comes to the management of this country? Well, I, certainly some of the policies he's implemented would be the kind you'd expect from a communist government, like his censorship bill, which would allow the CRTC to control what Canadians see and say on the Internet. He passed uh, the Emergencies Act to allow uh, authorities to look into people, freeze people's bank accounts. Um, so he has a long track record of supporting these kinds of authoritarian actions against our freedoms. And... Um, being uh, unusually cozy with a foreign dictator. Okay. So that's probably why he doesn't want a public inquiry. What's the real interest? What's your interest, your party's interest, the opposition party's interest in having the prime minister's chief of staff, Katie Telford, testify? Because clearly the liberals want nothing to do with that. Well, Katie Telford worked on Justin Trudeau, every one of Justin Trudeau's campaigns going back a decade. And we now know through leaked briefings that Katie Telford, or at least his, the top Trudeau liberal campaign team and PMO were briefed that one liberal candidate uh, had been nominated with the active support and involvement of the People's Republic of China consulate in Toronto. They, according to this briefing, the consulate provided busing to bring liberal, to bring voters out to support this liberal candidate. And they briefed top-level PMO and liberal officials, possibly including Ms. Telford, about that fact. Uh, and the thesis has brought that to the attention of the, of the PMO, and, and, and I think she knew about it. And that's why she doesn't want to come and fess up the truth and tell people what she, and more importantly, her boss knew. And testimony so before, the whole committee study. Testimony before a parliamentary committee is like testimony in a court of law, isn't it? Yes, we can require that the witness swear an oath, in which case it becomes an, a criminal offense if they subsequently lie. What do you want from uh, Mr. Jagmeet Singh, who sides with you and the Bloc Quebecois on the issue of a public inquiry? He was a guest on this program last weekend. And I asked Mr. Singh whether this is the time for his party to review the agreement, the, the, the contractual agreement they have with the Liberals. Mr. Singh said, not at this time. And I had to wonder... Well, when is the time? But what would you like to see from Mr. Singh and the New Democrats? Well, the NDP should stop working for Justin Trudeau and start working for the people who voted for them. You know, they joined into this costly coalition with 
Justin Trudeau uh, without having said they would do it during the election. They basically pulled a fast one on voters. And uh, ever since, they've supported Trudeau in tripling the carbon tax, uh, pumping up more inflationary deficit, giving big payouts to high-priced consultants, uh, driving up inflation and so on, rather than standing up for working class folks, good people who voted NDP. So Jagmeet Singh should work for the people rather than working for the prime minister. All right. What are your thoughts about Vincent Kerr? Now a member or former member of the Doug Ford Ontario government, sitting as an independent, following allegations Mr. Kerr was involved in an election interference network directed by China's consulate in Toronto. I saw a video of Mr. Kerr arguing that this is a case of anti-Asian racism. I don't know anything about his case other than what I've read in the paper, but it's another reason for a public inquiry. And I say in a very nonpartisan way, let's investigate all interference by Beijing and other authoritarian dictatorships in Canada uh, that, that they've done out in Canada. And let's invite everybody to testify, investigate all the parties. I have no problem with that because I'm 100% serene in knowledge that our, uh, I, I would never accept uh, foreign interference in my political party and that everyone should be held accountable if they've allowed it in theirs. In the two minutes we have left, let me change gears here for a moment. The carbon tax is going to be increasing by 14 cents per liter of uh, gasoline on the 1st of April. Your thoughts? I think I know what your thoughts are, but express them, please. I'm against the carbon tax. We need technology, not taxes. If like climate change, the best way is to bring down the cost of carbon-free alternatives rather than bringing up the cost of traditional energy. Trudeau and the NDP want to triple, triple, triple the carbon tax, uh, which will raise gas, home heating, and grocery bills. Groceries have to be paid on the farm, which is taxed by the carbon tax, and shipped by truck, which is also taxed. Higher carbon taxes mean higher prices for everything. Only the Conservatives will axe the tax, while the other parties want to increase it. Time to bring home lower prices, bring home more powerful paychecks for Canadians. Okay, I have two more questions for you. Uh, When it comes to uh, Meta and the decision they have made concerning C-18, saying they'll stop making Canadian news content available on their platforms if C-18 becomes law without modification, your thoughts on that? Well, I think C-18 should be made uh, done in a way that uh, it treats every source of news equally. It can't uh, favor just the liberal press gallery on Parliament Hill uh, and exclude everyone else. All the independent voices have to have equal compensation. And that's the position we take on social media platforms compensating news outlets. Treat everybody equal, and that way you have free speech uh, for all. I don't believe government should control what people see nor should it favor, financially favor uh, some media outlets over others. Uh, and uh, that's also why I oppose Bill C-11, Trudeau's censorship law, that will control what people see and say online, encourage people to go to my website, conservative.ca, and sign our petition to stop censorship and restore freedom of speech for all Canadians. Bring it home. What question would you urge Canadians to be asking When it comes to China's activities in this country and this federal government's reaction, what is the question Canadians should be asking? Well, we now know for sure that the communist government in Beijing wanted Justin Trudeau to 
that's not my opinion. It's not a theory. It's not an allegation. It is contained in Trudeau's own briefing notes from CSIS and from his department. So here's the question. Why? Why does a foreign communist dictatorship on the other side of the world care so much that Justin Trudeau stay in power? Is it because he's working for Canadians? One of the big issues that has been trailing all of us in this country for quite some time now is the cost of our food and food security. And uh, the three CEOs of the three largest grocery chains in Canada testified before the, Agri- before the Agricultural Committee at um, Parliament this week. And uh, we're going to talk about that now with our good friend and guest, Professor Sylvain Charlevoix, head of the Dalhousie University Agri-Foods Analytics Lab. Uh, Sylvain, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Was it, is it fair to accuse or virtually convict on social media Canada's largest grocery store chains and their CEOs of unprincipled profiteering during times of inflationary pressures coupled with high interest rates? <laughs> I mean, that's what's been going on. That's a long question. When you look at what happened in Ottawa this week, I, I'm just parts parts of the of the session was was fruitful, I think. But uh, I, I'm afraid that um, Mr. Singh's intervention was was just not very good. I mean, uh, for 12, he actually had the floor for 12 minutes, and uh, he basically took his 12 minutes to just accuse. Uh, I don't think he was actually listening. To what uh, CEOs have to say, and they actually did show up, and so you have to give them some credit. They showed up uh, in December, as you know, Roy. I actually testified myself uh, before the same committee. The CEOs were supposed to show up at the time; they didn't. They opted to uh, to wait until they were uh, summoned, uh, and now they did show up. And I was hoping that the committee would listen to what they had to say. I think most of them did. Uh, except for Mr. Singh. Um, that's, that's the unfortunate thing. You know, I tweeted a little earlier today, profit is not a dirty word, nor is profitability to be shunned. Entrepreneurs risk everything to begin a business, and when profitable, support their and our communities through taxes, providing employment, and encouraging growth. The person signing the checks is not the enemy. That's it at the Roy Green Show. But and I've been increasingly, Sylvan. The yeah. drift of the conversation has been bad guys. They're not. They're running big companies, and and these companies are supposed to be profitable. And if they're profitable, they can hire and they can expand and they can help the greater community in this country. The question then becomes: Are they excessively profitable at the expense of the hard pressed taxpayer? That's the question. I think that question got lost. Oh, absolutely. And so the three individuals that uh, showed up in Ottawa are three individuals I actually have met personally on more than one occasion. They're, they're principled, decent individuals. They care about their business. They care about Canadians. And so that's why they showed up. But the one thing that makes me really mad almost is, is this use of, of the term excessive profits I have no idea what that means. Yeah, me neither. Zero idea. And I'm, I'm hoping someday someone will explain to me what the difference is between profits and excessive profits. We have a capitalistic economy. Companies are supposed to make a profit. 
And nobody has dared to define what excessive profits are. Now, uh, during that session on, on Wednesday, uh, MP Turnbull uh, correctly uh, forced the committee to invite Walmart and Costco. I think it, I think it was a good idea to do that. But these companies are American-owned. I'm so looking forward to see American-owned companies comment on the term excessive profits. Yep, that'll be very interesting. <laughs> sometimes, Indeed, sometimes, so then, I think when they say excessive profits, it's like somebody saying, I don't want to quite accuse you of crossing the line between legal and illegal, so I'll just use a term like excessive profits, and I've used it from time to time, mostly with my tongue in cheek. But uh, it, it is a, it, it's, a, it's a hugely important issue because we do have Canadians who are in financial difficulty, who are not able to purchase foods that they've routinely purchased previously because of the, the, the cost increases. And then over time, people become angry and you start to point fingers and look elsewhere yep. for, for, for the cause, right? And then if you have a politician like Mr. Singh who, t- who takes this situation and runs with it, well, that can just add fuel to the fire. Well, the, the, the reason why Mr. Singh is, is doing that is that he knows that 80% of Canadians actually believe that grocers are gouging consumers because they don't really take the time to look at balance sheets. They don't, look at, they don't take the time to look at data. That's, that's the challenge. But the reality, Roy, if you want to talk about affordability and the cost of living, look at banks. I mean, a couple of, year, a couple of weeks ago, all banks, it was earnings season for, for banking in Canada. The smallest of the big five banks in Canada is CIBC. Last year, their profits were $4.7 billion, okay, for 2022. That is more than all grocers combined Mm -hmm. in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Look, answer this one for me. What are the most significant challenges to maintaining food costs uh, that Canadians would understand, like me, what are the biggest challenges, the most significant challenges that the grocers have in maintaining food costs or slowing down as much as possible the inflationary spiral or the rising cost of these foods? What, what's, what are the most significant challenges? I, I, think, I, I think you can bring all the seals you want. I don't think they'll bring any ideas or they won't necessarily help our problem. The problem again is competitiveness. So I I have defended grocers, but let's be real here. If you look at operational margins in Canada, they are double in the grocery business, they are double of what they are in the US. If you look at Kroger and Albertson. So it's been even though margins have been steady in Canada, it's been cozy for them too. I mean let's admit it. We need more competition in this in this market. And so the number one question I would have, if I would, if I were a member of that committee in Ottawa, I certainly would ask myself the following question. How do we make Canada more attractive for external investors like Little and Aldi? How do we actually make Canada more competitive? Because we have interprovincial barriers, a heavy fiscal regime. Uh, we have restrictive labor laws labeling laws as well. It's extremely difficult to do business in Canada. We've lost Target in a nanosecond. Sears left, Lowe's left, 
Nordstrom a couple weeks ago announced that he was leaving Canada. It's not an easy market to serve. So that I, I never have quite, quite the sense that the federal government really knows what it wants to accomplish when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to food, and as you pointed out to us, the feds in their last budget didn't even have a section on agriculture. Who knows whether they'll have one on the budget the finance minister is going to deliver on March 28th. But we have to have a base of knowledge to begin with and work forward from when we hear the execs from the grocery chains in order to come up with a conclusion that works for us, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think so. First, first of all, we um, about three years ago, Ottawa appointed a, a, a food policy council. That was three years ago. Uh, my understanding is that many, many members have left now. They've resigned and nothing has really come out of, of, of that council at all. Uh, I've actually been on their website recently and there's not, there's not a report. And I was hoping, I think the deal was that this group would work on, uh, on a policy, on, on a vision for, for the country. And we have, we don't have one necessarily. All we have uh, are programs to support farmers uh, on an ad hoc basis almost. And, and uh, it's not necessarily clear. In the U.S., they have a farm bill, a massive farm bill. Uh, that's their vision. You may not agree with that vision, but at least they have a vision. China's the same thing. Major countries around the world have a clear vision for the agriculture and agri-food sector. In Canada, what I'm, what I'm noticing, Roy, the uh, last couple of years is that provinces are actually making a difference. Provinces are actually doing Something Quebec, Ontario, um, even here in Nova Scotia, there's there's some movement here. Uh, Alberta as well. I've been impressed with some of the stuff going on. I'll be in Saskatchewan this week uh, talking about this. Uh, but Ottawa is is pretty idle. Like you can you can't really feel that they want to commit to some sort of vision. Yeah, no, that that's the sense that I have as well. Now, was there anywhere during the hearing where the execs, the CEOs? Of the three major chains, drop the ball. No, no. Actually, I think they did very well. Uh, I actually graded all three of them on Twitter. So I gave a an A to to Michael Medline, uh, CEO of of Empire. I thought he did very well. Uh, he was true to himself. Uh, I've spoken to him several times, and uh, he's just a, a great guy. He, he and he's, he's he's the true deal. Uh, Gail Weston did very well. Uh, we, I think everyone expected him to be the target. He, he fielded uh, the attacks quite well. Uh, he didn't lose it. He was very calm uh, throughout the session. Eric Laflèche, uh, so I gave him an A minus. For Eric Laflèche, I gave him a B because he didn't show up physically. And he was kind of forgotten all the way through. Uh, he actually wasn't asked to respond to most of the questions. Uh, he just stayed in Montreal and so that, I, that was a bit of a miss for Metro. Mm-hmm. What's the way out of this food cost inflationary cycle? Mm-hmm. Are, are we masters of our own Canadian destiny or are we largely along for the ride? Well, keep in mind, uh, Roy, that we, have, uh, one of the, we still have one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world. Uh, only the U.S. and Japan has a lower food inflation rate amongst G7 countries. We're going to get out of this over the short term. I don't think Parliament can do anything, really. But over the long term, uh, I think the grocer code of conduct will make a difference. And there was a lot of discussion about that on Wednesday. I was happy about 
Um, Sobeys uh, wholeheartedly endorses the code. For Loblaws and Metro, uh, it wasn't really all that clear that they do endorse the code because they've had conditions. But anyway, the code of conduct would lessen the power that Walmart and Loblaws would have, and it would give a chance for independent grocers to survive, essentially. And we need that. And, of course, the Competition Act, it needs to change. I mean, seriously, the bread story, the bread price fixing scheme investigation has been going on for eight years, eight years, still nothing. So the government needs more power, more influence. uh, And that's why Canadians are a little upset because they feel unprotected. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel as far as the cost of food is concerned? Uh, Do we have a target? Can we see the target where we can say once we get there, we're going to see costs returning to some somewhere close to where what we might consider to be normal, acceptable, and and within our means. So for 2023, we're in the worst of it right now. Uh, by 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 the end of spring, early summer, we are expecting the food inflation rate to drop uh, significantly. Uh, we should end the year with a food inflation rate of probably around 4, 4 or 5%, which is much less than what it is now at 10.4%. But let's not kid ourselves. I don't think that food prices uh, are going to drop anytime soon at all. I mean, there's a new baseline. 2022 was really difficult. Wages are up. Uh, The cost to produce feed is is way up across the board. So it would be... It would be, I don't think it would be reasonable for all of us to think that food prices will drop. They've actually only dropped once in the last 40 years. And that's when Target announced that it was coming into Canada. Okay. And so that's why I've always argued we need more competition. Last weekend, we spoke with Alexander Sherba, the uh, Ukrainian ambassador to, uh, to Austria previously. And we talked about the the vicious assaults by Russia on Ukraine that were taking place. We didn't know that in the next few days, the assaults would just get worse. And the missile assaults have been uh, absolutely brutal. They've used hypersonic missiles, the Russians have, and civilian population in Ukraine is uh, suffering dramatically. So, so what now? And um, Ambassador Sherba said Ukraine really needs Western battle tanks. It's been promised, and uh, he says they will immediately change the dynamic on the ground. But the question is, will the tanks do that? Some military experts argue the tank is done. The time of the tank has gone. I don't think our guest is going to say that, and I do believe he'll suggest to us that heavy armor from the West will influence the dynamic of the war in Russia. How much will it cost? Is it sustainable? Will the Russians resort to using doomsday weapons? We've talked about that as well. My guest is Colonel Peter Mansour, professor of military history at Ohio State University. He commanded the 1st Brigade of the 1st Armored Division of the U.S. Army, including 13 months of combat in Iraq. Uh, Colonel Mansour was the executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq during the surge. He's the author of the book, Surge. And uh, heavy armor has a major role to play 
in wars now and in the future. Is what I expect Colonel Mansour to, to tell us. If you go to at the Roy Green Show, my Twitter feed, you'll see the link to Colonel Mansour's most recent book, The Culture of Military Organizations. Colonel Mansour, good to talk to you again. It's been a while. It is great to be back on, Roy. Well, what's your view of Russia's brutal attacks on Ukraine's civilian population and the national infrastructure, particularly in the past few days? Yeah, what we're seeing is essentially a strategic bombing campaign targeting Ukraine, the Ukrainian electrical grid. Um, this is not unlike um, the U.S. and British assaults against the German oil facilities in World War II. Um, the, the Russians have just chosen a different node of the economy to attack. Um, they, the Russians think that it will wear away the Ukrainian will to fight. Um, but they have been mistaken. And um, what we saw in World War II is it takes a very great deal of destruction indeed to force uh, a nation to surrender. In World War II, it, Germany only surrendered after it was overrun by ground forces, and Japan only surrendered after a firebombing campaign and then two atomic bombs. So, uh, Colonel Mansur, does the Ukrainian military success on the battlefield so far speak to uh, a combination of Russian incompetence meeting a well-trained and very motivated opponent? Uh, that's that's precisely it. You know, I was really astonished that so many so-called experts uh, predicted Ukraine would uh, collapse in a matter of days when uh, Russia invaded. Now, I, I didn't expect the Russian army to be quite as incompetent to the, as it has proven to be. Uh, but I knew the Ukrainians would fight. Um, they're in it uh, for their sovereignty and their freedom. Uh, they've made great strides since 2014 when they were initially invaded by little green men uh, from the east. And um, and the population is, uh, you know, into supporting the government on this. And, and that uh, goes a long way towards uh, military effectiveness. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, during one of my conversations, I think it was with uh, Ambassador Sherba, could have been a member of parliament from Ukraine, but it was a Ukrainian guest who said they'd been speaking with a senior commander of the Ukrainian military. And this senior commander had been so incensed at the tactics employed by the Russians that he said, when we get to the Russian border, we just may not stop. <laughs> Well, I, I think they would lose the support of the West in that case. So I think that's hyperbole. Um, but what we're seeing is the Russians uh, have burned through their stock of armored vehicles. They're, they're using convicts now in sort of mass wave human assaults in the South, and uh, they're getting killed in large numbers. Um, you know, I, you mentioned the tanks. Armored vehicles uh, have a role to play in modern warfare, and if, if you don't have them on the battlefield, then you, the battle is reverted to trench warfare uh, of World War One. Yeah, and uh, I think that's what we're seeing there in in the South right now. Right. Let me ask you about this, because Ukraine's call for tanks, and I think they're about to receive maybe close to two hundred, a uh, combination of German Leopard battle tanks, the British Challenger, and the U.S. Abrams in the M1A2 configuration. These, uh, the, I, I read a piece by a military expert a couple of days ago who said tanks today are like the battleships of 100 years ago. And I thought, I don't think so. I think tanks today have a significant role to play. Uh, given their vulnerability, though, and the Russian tanks have proven to be vulnerable to shoulder-fired uh, uh, 
uh, rockets, RPGs by by Ukrainian soldiers. The, the tank has a role to play, but it needs more more support now, does it not? Um, exactly. So the battleship analogy is wrong because the battleships were actually replaced by um, naval uh, air power, by aircraft carriers carrying planes that could reach out and uh, and destroy battleships from a distance. But nothing has yet replaced the tank. The tank is just mobile, armored, protected firepower. And again, if you don't have it, you revert to infantry wearing uniforms and helmets getting killed in large numbers to artillery and machine gun fire. Mm -hmm. That's why tanks were developed in the first place. The tanks are only obsolete if you don't protect them. And so when you do protect them with air defense, counter drone activities, combined arms uh, uh, formations that have infantry and engineers and uh, other arms that protect the tanks, then the tank is still dominant on the battlefield. We saw that in the first Gulf War. We saw it in the invasion of Iraq. And we will see it again in Ukraine once the armored vehicles that the West has promised Ukraine get integrated into their army. So you can see um, upwards of 150 to maybe 200 tanks making that significant a difference or a change in the battles and in the fights between the Russians and the Ukrainians. The Western tanks will have the ability to create real problems, additional problems for the Russians. Uh, Colonel Mansour, how did you... Well, sorry, let me, let me just say... They will, but 200 is not enough. Yeah. 200 is the, um, the number of tanks we have in a single division in the U.S. Army. Um, you know, they, they're going to need probably a thousand tanks uh, to really make a, uh, a combined arms force that can take back the territory that Russia has illegally seized. What's your sense? Will they get that? Not initially, um, but we'll see how these first 200 work out. And if... Uh, if they work out well, then I think uh, more might be in the cards. But the problem is the West isn't producing the tanks fast enough. We've Our defense industries have atrophied since the end of the Cold War. So I'm not sure that we have, it, have them in our stockpiles to give up. Well, that's another question that's been raised. Uh, just how depleted are Western countries' arsenals becoming? Yeah, it's a real problem, especially... Uh, Artillery shells, which uh, Ukrainian forces are burning through at a rapid rate. Um, the United States now is debating whether to uh, uh, re-energize these uh, supply lines, these industry manufacturing lines, and um, and ramp up production of, of artillery shells, tanks, other armored vehicles, drones. Um, I think you're going to see attention put on uh, defense industry going forward. Uh, just for our own national security reasons, if nothing else, because what we've seen in, in the Ukraine war is that these wars aren't necessarily short. And and if they extend over months and years, you're going to need a lot of weapons and equipment to win them. Mm -hmm. uh, you led U.S. armor in Iraq for 13 months. How are your tanks and your heavy armor most effective? Um, we had M1A1 uh, heavy metal tanks. That is, uh, they had depleted uranium armor. Uh, and they were quite effective against um, the threat that we faced, but it was no, nowhere near as sophisticated as what the Ukrainians are facing. Uh, but they were effective against RPGs, um, roadside bombs. Uh, they might tear off a track or whatnot, but only the uh, Iranian-supplied explosive form penetrators could actually penetrate an Abrams tank, um, and they were lethal to us. Uh, so. 
we basically learned the same thing that tanks have to be protected. You have to have infantry with them working together, um, and you have to have, of course, air cover overhead. Is it your sense, and we have to take a break in a moment, uh, Colonel Mansour, but is it your sense that the Ukrainian military, if it gets the equipment that it requires, uh, whether it's staged, you know, you get 50 here, 100 there, whatever the numbers may be, uh, that they can, in fact, put a stop to the Russian invasion and push the Russians back to their border? Yeah, I believe they can. Uh, I, their leadership has proven uh, much more competent and flexible. Uh, they're being trained now at uh, NATO training centers in Germany and elsewhere and Poland uh, in combined arms tactics. Uh, it'll take some months to integrate the equipment. Uh, one of the um, challenges they might have is the number of spare parts with all these different types of uh, tanks and armored vehicles uh, coming into the force. But uh, I think Ukraine will develop a very, very effective offensive striking force in the months to come. It's incredible when we think about this and we talk about these situations that are developing uh, right as we speak, uh, certainly thousands of miles away, but they are developing. A year and a half ago, we never would have thought this. And here we are in the middle of it, or Ukraine is in the middle of it, with the Russians inv having invaded their country. But the whole world is involved now. Gentlemen, so let me just, before we talk about um, how things may change on the battlefield in Ukraine, ask you about the culture of military organizations, because it reads in part, culture has an enormous influence on military organizations and their success or failure in war. How has that played itself out in, on both the Russian and on the Ukrainian sides? Well, you can see this uh, most uh, starkly on the Russian side. Uh, the Russian military has been hollowed out by corruption, um, and they're a far cry from what the Red Army was in World War II. Um, they've, their culture has developed in such a way that a competence uh, on the battlefield is really not the, uh, the primary motivation for its officer corps. And as a result, they can't fight. Uh, and we've seen this very clearly in the past year. Uh, on the Ukrainian side, what, we see, what we're seeing is a changing culture because they inherited a culture uh, from the Red Army. They were part of the Soviet Union. Uh, but in the last uh, eight years, ever since they were invaded in 2014, uh, they've been getting um, advice uh, and tutelage from U.S. Special Forces and other Western armies. And they are now developing uh, a different culture for their army, which is much more flexible uh, and much more attuned to the needs uh, of a high-paced battlefield. How would you advise them to use a couple of hundred tanks? I know you said they need probably a thousand to make a really significant change on the battlefield, but how would you advise them to engage this 150 or 200 new tanks they'll be receiving? Yeah, well, I would probably divide them up into um, uh, groups of 50 if you have 200 and create four armored or mechanized divisions and use them in uh, in one place on, on the battlefield rather than spreading them out among various units. Uh, the French did that in 1940 and got run over by the Wehrmacht. Um, it's much better to group the tanks together, uh, create armored and mechanized divisions, and then, um, and then develop a battle plan that would uh, penetrate Russian lines, encircle large number of forces, and take back ground. Um, and these two things, taking back territory and taking a lot of Russians prisoner, would uh, put pressure on Putin to come to the negotiating table. Yeah. As a military historian, do, do you recognize precedent in what's taking place in Ukraine? And 
what may yet develop in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you just mentioned Putin. In, in history, do nations which invade other nations and get their noses bloodied up the ante, or do they normally back away? Uh, I, I think uh, we, there's a pretty good um, uh, uh, parallel in the Russo-Finnish War back in 1939. The Russians invaded. They thought they would run over the Finns. Uh, the Finns had maybe a tenth of the population of Russia, maybe even less. Uh, but they fought. They had a much better army, more flexible, better trained, and they and they really bloodied the nose of the Red Army badly. Um, the Red Army regrouped and um, had a much more sensible follow-on campaign, stressing massive use of artillery fire. It eventually wore the Finns down, and the Finns then had to negotiate a ceasefire. I think this is what uh, Putin is hoping will happen, uh, and the war is kind of following along these same lines. Except that uh, the Russians, in regrouping and uh, and using artillery fire and so forth in the south, really aren't having much more success than they had the first year. Uh, what are the chances of uh, this war expanding and pulling in other nations? We seem seem to be nibbling at the edges of that. Some have said it's a proxy war. What are you? What's your what's your thinking on that? Well, I don't think Putin's going to give up. You know, everyone is saying, oh, the the Ukrainians, we need to force them to negotiate. That means, uh, if you really are serious about that, it means we're, we'd be forcing them to surrender. Because right now, the only thing that Putin will take is total victory. Um, he's not going to accept a Ukraine that isn't subservient to his will. Um, so I think that the war very likely could expand if, as Putin is not achieving his goals, uh, he may up the ante. He already upped it once with the um, strategic bombing campaign, the missile strikes against Ukraine, uh, and he very well could um, up the ante uh, even further as we go forward. I doubt that will include nuclear weapons just because it's a high-risk gambit on his part, but it's possible. Okay, it's us, uh, but not just us. Australia faced China's interference and has been far more direct in its response to Beijing. The head of Australia's intelligence service talked of having expelled a, quote, hive of spies from the country. Meanwhile, Australia's former trade minister, immediately after leaving government service, accepted a job working for a Chinese billionaire with ties to the Beijing government, and he was being paid $880,000 a year. That's Australia's former trade minister on the day after he left government service. He went to work for a Chinese billionaire for 880 k a year. Now, my guest has said, I don't have confidence that when it comes to sensitive investigations involving China that could possibly drag in the political elite in this country, the government really has an interest in getting these types of investigations over the line. My guest is Professor Christian Luprecht, professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the MacDonald Laurier Institute. He's regularly called on as an expert witness by parliamentary committees, and he's the author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. Christian, thank you for taking the time. I just spoke with Pierre Polyev. What are your, uh, what are your primary concerns about China's engagements in this country? Uh, that they are long-standing, they are vast and extensive, and that simply by the frenzy that China has stirred up, questioning the integrity of our electoral system, 
They've achieved their objective in terms of gray zone activities and hybrid warfare below the threshold of armed conflict, which is to sow doubt in the minds of Canadians about the integrity of our democratic institutions, which is why it is so important that there is a full and transparent accounting to ensure that Canadians can have full confidence in our democratic institutions and why it is so important that the government move without delay to ensure there is serious constraints and a deterrent imposed on adversarial state actors looking to influence or meddle in our elections. You've been uh, unequivocal in stating that you don't have confidence in this government, the current government of Canada, the Trudeau government. Uh, Let me read it again. When it comes to sensitive investigations involving China that could possibly drag in the political elite of this country, you don't have confidence the government really has an interest in getting these types of investigations over the line. Expand on that a little bit for us, please. Right. So this was in the context of RCMP investigations into the uh, Winnipeg Level 4 Microbiology Lab. Uh, now more than three and a half years in, the charitable interpretation as well that there is no evidence to be able to uh, charge. But in that case, we would have dropped the investigation. Rather, uh, the challenges and dysfunctions within the RCMP and that those may be working in the interests of some of the political elite that would rather not have certain investigations uh, be brought to uh, be, be taken over the line and see prosecutions. So I think the inability to investigate, on the one hand, is essentially emboldens adversarial actors uh, in the activities, the illicit and criminal activities in which they are engaged in Canada. Uh, But if Australia, as you started the introduction to our interview, is any indication, there is a significant challenge of elite capture in this country among the political, economic, industrial, social and cultural elites. And we know that uh, the United uh, Workers Front of the Communist Party of China is actively engaged in trying to buy sympathies among those elites in countries across the world. And anybody who believes that this is not happening in Canada uh, is either naive or I would have to think is part of the overall ruse that China is trying to feed us. And I think a public inquiry would be quite embarrassing, in particular for the Laurentian elites in Ontario and Quebec, um, I suspect on both sides of the political aisle, but also much more broadly in terms of Canadian society and the sympathies that China has bought itself over the last 30 years, going back to at least the Chrétien government, which of course actively shut down the sidewinder investigations in 1997 into the collaboration between Chinese triads and Chinese intelligence in their activities in Canada. So I hear you saying, and I want to be uh, I want to be correct about this. I hear you saying that uh, China has its own interests in Canada. Clearly, we we know that, but that this government and uh, the Liberal Party or the Liberal government may have an inappropriate. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. An inappropriate interest in protecting China from direct and public. Inquiry. Well, I would say it is hard for us to gauge the motivations by any one individual or any one political party. Andrew Coyne in the recent op-ed speculates on a number of these, and these motivations need not necessarily be treasonous. They can be any number of motivations. 
But certainly, I do believe that if we look at the track record that China has in other countries, in Australia, that is the tracker that is probably the best known and the most apparent. Um, but uh, there's no reason to believe that this track record would be uh, different elsewhere. And generally among the G7, it is widely said uh, that Canada has the greatest extent of elite capture of any of the G7 countries, uh, that that track record, track record would prevail here as well. And look, when we have allegations that uh, candidates of the governing party are allegedly being aided and abetted uh, by uh, not just foreign influence, but actively uh, by busing in people allegedly to writing associations, by providing financing to uh, candidates uh, when CSIS has on previous occasions by name called out um, uh, provincial politicians uh, in this country uh, that this would and 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 now that we have memos also in public uh, that go back to warnings from the Privy Council office to the Prime Minister dating back to at least 2017 and the inaction by the government, you would have to wonder why is it that people are so concerned about taking concrete action. Um, I, I my hypothesis is that they are a little bit concerned about what we would be finding if we would actually start to investigate uh, either criminally or through a judicial inquiry. Yeah, I was wondering in my conversation with Mr. Polyev just how objective the search for the rapporteur is going to be if the rapporteur has the um, the influence to call for a public inquiry and if the rapporteur were to do that, Mr. Trudeau has said he would likely follow that advice. So if Mr. Trudeau doesn't want a public inquiry, how objective is the search for the rapporteur going to be? Well, I think what the government is trying to do is change the channel, right? They're trying to kick the can down the road yeah. in the hope that sort of all the TV here turn, uh, dies down and that they can get the budget over the line. Of course, this is a critical time for any government um, uh, because the, the uh, budgets are associated with confidence votes. And so the government is clearly doesn't have, as a minority government, uh, would prefer this not becoming the sole uh, uh, issue here, part of the confidence discussion um, uh, over the federal budget that the government is looking to deliver. I think there's also a sense that uh, this whole conversation is not really the uh, policy priority of this current government. And so charitably, one might say that uh, the government is concerned that this might be distracting from what it is looking to get done. But look, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's reasonably straightforward that I think China poses an existential threat to the Canadian way of life. Uh, and that Chinese espionage interference in Canada poses the single greatest threat to the Canadian way of life uh, as we know it. And so I'm surprised that, you know, that I, uh, as I've said on the show before, the first and fundamental and most important obligation any government has to its citizens is their safety and security. Yes. And so when that is being called into question, then uh, I think government is not following through of its most fundamental obligation it has towards its citizens in any state in this world. Yesterday, at the annual conference of Defense Associations Institute in Ottawa, Canada's former vice chief of the defense staff and commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, warned, and I'm quoting here, we are not taking defense and security seriously in this country, and our way of life is in jeopardy as a result. And quote, Admiral Norman's going to be joining me in just over an hour's time to speak about this. But this is exactly what you're saying and what you've been saying. 
And in your book, Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, you make the case that intelligence agencies have a tremendous role to play. Are intelligence agencies in this country receiving the appropriate support from the federal government? And are intelligence agencies in this country doing what they need to be doing? Um, Christian, because I, I have to ask... How does some of the information that got out, the top secret documents that got out of CSIS, how did they get out of there? So are the agencies receiving the support they re they require and deserve, and are they doing the job they need to be doing? Well, I think as in any democracy, the intelligence agencies seem to be able to identify the challenges and seem to be able to do so with considerable accuracy. But as is often the case in democracies, getting democratic politicians to then follow up on that intelligence and taking political decisions uh, that can be much more controversial. The challenge we have in Canada is we've always been very homeopathic in how we resource our national security and intelligence and defense establishment for that matter. And if you look at this strategically from the perspective of a hostile state actor, if you're having trouble infiltrating the United States because of its large intelligence and national security community, its fairly robust legislation, look, What's the second best option here? The United States fears the continent and has arguably the closest security relationship in the world with Canada. So if you can influence Canada, Canadian politicians, the Canadian economy, as we, for instance, saw with Hydro-Quebec and uh, the recent uh, Chinese mole uh, that was uh, taken into custody there by RCMP, Canada is a, good, uh, is, is a pretty good second best target. And the problem is we are simply not postured neither in terms of resources nor in terms of legislation, and certainly, as we see here, not in terms of political will. Christian, so if we can pull all this together, China as an existential threat to this country, Australia facing China's threat and how Australia responded, and then if we can somehow bring the Katie Telford appearing before the parliamentary committee's issue into the answer as well, that'd be great. Sure. So let's look at the objective here. So the Communist Party of China something called the United Front Work Department. The United Front Work Department is active in countries across the world, and it has a couple of key mandates. One is to suppress protests against China, um, including, for instance, against Tibetans on Canadian university campuses. And the other is to get ethnic Chinese under its influence elected to democratic legislatures in Western countries. Does this sound familiar, perhaps, to any of the listeners? Now, you don't have to take it from me. In a February 2022 federal court ruling, it found that the United Front Work Department oversees Chinese Affairs Office engages in covert and surreptitious intelligence gathering. Now, look at a PCO memo uh, to the prime minister that warned that the United Front Work Department's extensive network of quasi-official and local community and interest groups allow it to obfuscate communication and the flow of funds between Canadian targets and Chinese officials. Um, China has the largest diplomatic service in this country in terms of representatives. This is somewhat curious, given that we have relatively modest relations with China. What do we think that all these diplomats are doing? It is surprising to me that the Minister of Foreign Affairs denies one visa to one Chinese diplomat who apparently is misrepresenting themselves, well, what, who do you think is doing all this work? CSIS has explicitly called out a host of Chinese diplomats uh, across this country. And yet it seems that the government uh, is not prepared to, to take action here. Look at Australia. Australia, when it realized, the, especially during the year when I was living there about five years ago, 
This became front page news. It completely revamped its national security community during that time. It has a five-year review of its national security intelligence community. Um, it has a domestic as well as a foreign intelligence service. Canada has never had a foreign collection service. We only have a foreign signal service. That means essentially when we try to run these investigations, we are blind on one eye because we see the domestic part, but CSIS is very limited in its international activities. Um, and uh, Australia has taken the hard measures that have been on the table and recommended to this prime minister by the very committee that he has now tasked again to look at this issue, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, that reports directly to him, which already in 2019 issued a report providing a whole series of observations about what is going on with regards to election interference in this country and a series of recommendations that appears it have, have not been actioned uh, by the government. And so you have to wonder, perhaps the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff might have some answers as to why it is that uh, the office has had all this information that hasn't actioned it. But I would think that perhaps the reason that governments don't usually want their chiefs of staff to testify is because of something called plausible deniability. That is to say, we don't necessarily always tell the prime minister everything so that he can say in earnest before the public when something becomes critical and serious, oh, actually, I didn't know and nobody told me. But of course, there are people in the prime minister's entourage who know. And uh, one has to wonder, given that... uh, how insistent the party is on not having the chief of staff testify, whether the chief of staff has some information uh, that could perhaps be quite injurious to the government or to the country. Yeah, and as you've pointed out before on this program, if you testify before a parliamentary committee, that's very similar to testifying before a court. If you are found to not tell the truth, there are perjury consequences. Well, and I mean, the government is in a situation that could ostensibly be quite serious. I mean, look, I mean, On the face of it, the allegations are that the government knowingly knowingly was willing to tolerate the fact that a hostile foreign power was aiding and abetting its own candidates, possibly its own party and its own campaign. I would have to think that is a pretty serious allegation. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.